can't remember exactly what year it was, but I was pastoring this church for a while. And I was running on ability and skills, and, but I was becoming more and more depressed, more and more saddened. I remember I went to the door um, to leave real early because I had so many things to do. And I got to the door to try to unlock it. And so I was like, I unlocked. It's a Brooklyn apartment, so there was like 15 locks on it. And so I unlocked the first one. I unlocked the second one. I unlocked the third one. And I twisted the doorknob and opened the door. And does anybody have those little chains on your door still? This, was, this door is old enough to have one of those little chains. And I pushed, I pulled on the chain, and I remember the, the chain latch caught. And I just looked at it, and I just started to cry. Because it was like one more thing to do. And I wasn't functioning out of my joy. I wasn't functioning out of my hope. I was just existing in life, exhausted about all the things that I had. I don't know if you've ever been in a place in your life where you ran out of hope. Maybe you've been in a place in your life where you've, like me, are just running too fast, doing too much, and your joy has simply seeped out of you. Every one of us has happened. That's happened to every one of us. Maybe for you, it's in your marriage. Your marriage was hitting on all cylinders. It was absolutely delightful. It was wonderful. But and then something happened or nothing happened, and now it's in this place of great hopelessness, joylessness. Maybe for you it's not marriage. Maybe you're single. And in your singleness, you've decided, well, there's no hope for me. I'm never going to get married. And all your hopes for a family and all your joys that come along with that have just been drained out of you. Maybe it's with your money. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's where your life is now. Now, what's interesting, when we lose hope and joy, we generally tend to go to something to replace the hope that we lost and the joy that's no longer found. It's almost as if we carry a purse of joy and happiness, hope and deliverance. And so we carry with us our purse and as we walk around and we feel hope drained out of us, we go, oh, wait, wait, wait. I've got just the thing for this. Oh, this marriage is not going the way I want it to? I've got just the thing for this. Oh, wait. This job is not going the way I want it to? This, and we, we dig into our mercy for the thing that we try to find hope in. Maybe for you, Man, there's a hundred million different kinds of things that you can come to. But you carry it with you. For some of us, it's sarcasm. That's what we do. We go, well, you know what? I'm just going to run to what I know. 
It's a defense mechanism. It protects you. For others of us, it's a substance. And maybe you're here right now because this is the recovery house of worship and you need help with your substance. Man, we're glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. Whether it's alcohol or weed or coke or crack or heroin or whatever, you're in the right place. We're glad that you're here. But maybe, but maybe for you, that's none of your deals. You know what you do. You run to overtime and making more money and making the next deal. All of us have a place to run to when our hope runs out and when our joy runs out. God can see that each one of us, Christian and non-Christian, this is not a a device of the non-Christian, or this is not a a struggle of the non-Christian. Whether you love Jesus or are ambivalent towards Jesus, there is something that you're going to run to. Hopelessness is going to happen. And God wants to show us when you're with your kids and you feel no hope and you just, I I literally remember this woman one time. I was in a building and she had two kids and both of them were having a fit at the same time, like they coordinated their fit. (laughs) And so she literally walked outside of her door in the hallway just sat down and put her head in her hands and started to weep. Man, it's a terrible, lonely place to be that place when you're at the end of your rope. Today we're going to look in the text and see what happens when God finds us at the end of our joy and with no hope in sight. We're going to find it not in the normal things that we run to, We're going to find it in the most wonderful place possible. But I got to admit, the story can be a little bit of a distraction. Just the story itself. So let me see if I can walk you through the stories. Before I do, let me tell you, we're in a series called Encounters. And what we've been talking about in this series called Encounters is what happens to the life that finds Christ, that encounters Christ, that when Christ encounters your life, your life is never the same. Your life is transformed from the bottom up, inside out. Your life is completely not the way it was. So we're finding places where Jesus, uh, people encounter Jesus and what their response is. So we find our text in John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. This will be the first of Jesus' miracles. This, this miracle, being the first, is explaining, therefore, John is a very subtle writer, and he's leaving clues and signs for all of us. And what he's saying in this is that Everything that you're looking for in Christ is in this one moment. The gospel is found in this one moment. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus' first miracles, first miracle in the book of John, actually his first miracle, period, is him turning water into wine. Now, That leaves me, as the pastor of the Recovery House of Worship, 
with something to explain. Because the last thing I want is for any of us here to have some wine. It's the last thing. Some of you, if you, you know, because some of us, not all of us here, I mean, there are many of us who don't have a problem with alcohol or drugs or anything like that. And, and, and it's fine for you. But some of you have an allergy to alcohol, right? And you break out in handcuffs and jail cells. And it gets ugly. Doesn't go well for you. And so I don't want you to get distracted. So I'd, A, I don't want you to hear an endorsement of you relapsing or drinking alcohol. Okay? A agreed? Yeah, okay. Secondly, I want you to see this for what this is in the context and within the culture that it happens. Because it's, if you can just get past this one thing, oh, this wine thing or this alcohol thing, then what I think you'll find is something so gorgeous and so beautiful. Jesus, the first miracle, the miracle that is going to give you a huge picture of the kingdom of God and the gospel is found at a wedding feast when people run out of liquor. It's pretty profound. So, what we learn, what we learn in this text, and the big idea that I want you to take away, and we're going to get into the text in a second, but I want you to see this point. What we learn is that when Christ is our hope, joy is our life. When Christ is our hope, joy is our life. By the way, when other things are your hope, when you go into your regular bag of hope, when other things are your hope, and what can be your hope? You know what your hopes are, right? It could be anything from shopping for things that you don't need, spending money that you don't have, eating things and then purging them. It could be anything. It could be your husband, your kids. Anything that you run to for hope will eventually run you down. Anything that you go into your bag of tricks for hope will eventually run you down, run you ragged. But when Christ is your hope, joy is your life. So let's read this very beautiful passage in John chapter 2. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? On the count of three, let's read this together. Hmm. Verses 1, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. No, take that down. All right, so look into your notes. On the one, two, three. On the third day, a wedding took place. One, two, three. Everybody read. Oh, you don't have, uh, you don't have, uh, you have John three. I'm sure that this is my fault. I'm absolutely certain about that. Because let me tell you something. The people that we have serving uh, behind the scenes are absolutely fantastic. So this is for sure my, my fault. Everybody go. Okay. You're a bunch of Pharisees. All right. No grace here. Okay. okay. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, verses 1 through 11. says, On the third day, 
a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Please have a seat. So Jesus is doing the first miracle. It happens to be at a wedding, uh, uh, a wedding feast. And John does, opens up with talking about this event by this really odd thing that he does, this really odd particular detail that he gives. On the third day, a wedding took place. Now, most places you don't find any of the uh, gospel writers. You find it sporadically, very little, but not many places. We'll look back on that later on, but it's a weird piece that John puts up there. Jesus' mother was there. Now, remember, this is a picture of gospel life. This is a picture of our lives in Christ, this miracle. So Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. What happened was simply, there was was probably an event where his family was invited, and that's why Jesus is there and his disciples are following him to go to this uh, feast. And it's supposed to be a big deal. Now, we are culturally removed from this moment, so you don't know how big a deal this is. When, When you had a wedding feast, the feast was such a big deal that it was something that you invited the entire family. It was a huge thing. And the party wasn't like from, you know, from 3 to 10. The party was like from Tuesday to Saturday. You see what I'm saying? It was like a big deal. Now, what was very, this was such a big deal because uh, uh, for several different reasons, they were celebrating this incredible occasion, a wedding. Secondly, This is probably the first time that year 
that people were going to actually eat meat. This was a, a meat was a rich man's delicacy, and so they were going to actually have meat, but then they were also going to be able to drink and make merry, right? So they were, this was like a big feast, and it was going to go on for days. Jesus is at this party, and it's like going amazing, and it's going incredible. And then Jesus' mother notices something. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this is important. There's a lot of things that we could learn from this, but I want to just point out a few of them. And one of them is when you find yourself at the end, it's not a bad idea to turn to Jesus. Mary was looking to Jesus as sort of the head of the household for a while now. It was the finances that he made as a carpenter that provided for their family. It was his leadership that was given to them. And isn't that, boy, isn't that a wonderful place to turn to when you're at the end of your rope, when you have nothing else, you turn to Jesus and go, do you, do you believe this? Mary does this instinctually, instinctively, and she says, They've no more wine. And Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? Now, I know that sounds harsh, right? It's a different culture. It's a different culture. You know that this is not harsh. You know that this is not harsh because Jesus, in the book of John, always calls his mother Mary woman. It's the way she's designated. She's called woman. John, the the scholars believe that the reason that they did this to differentiate her from the other Marys, because there are several other Marys, it also can be considered a term of endearment. Like if we were in the South, it might be ma'am. It's like more of a term of, it's not, Jesus is not like shaking shaking his neck and going, woman, what you doing? You know, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not responding to his mother disrespectfully. He's going mad. Now, how do we know this? Because Jesus is going to use woman one more time at the end of the gospel when he turns to her while he's on the cross. And I promise you he's not being disrespectful to her while he's on the cross. And he says, woman, here's your son, meaning John. And then um, here's your mother. You see, so he's not using it disrespectfully. He's using it like sort of like a, a formal term, like a, a loose, not a loose term, like ma'am, just like ma'am. He goes, why? but it's, the question is what we need to be focused on. Don't get distracted by wine or women or woman. Um, look at the question. Why do you involve me? Can we just pause on that question for a second? So, why do you involve Jesus? Why? Is it so that he could fix your marriage and then you bounce him? What God are you running to God to so he could give you your God? Why are you involving me? Oh, because I just need to get clean. Oh, good, I can help you with that. And now we're clean. Who needs Jesus? I'm clean. Why do you involve me? Well, okay, so he is the love of my life, but he doesn't really want to be with me, but if you could just change his mind, that would be great. So Jesus, would you please help me get the love of my life? Why do you involve 
me? It's a good question to ask. Because the fact is, most of us run to Jesus for things that Jesus wants nothing to do with. And the reason, and it's good news, because we want nothing to do with him. We just want him to give us our real savior. Fix my husband. Fix my finances. Fix my business. Fix my, um, my uh, scholastic career. Fix my health. Fix my... Why do you involve me? Well, because you're someone who's easy to use and discard. That's why. If that's our heart, we need to just pause and remember what the point of this is talking about. The point is, when Christ is our hope, joy is our life. When Christ is our hope, joy is our life. Because anything else that you place your hope on will run out. Even the wine that Jesus converts later on, as we just read, will eventually run out. It's always going to run out. Nothing on this earth is forever. So if we make anything on this earth our hope, our hope is sure to run out. So Jesus asked his mother, why? Well, her reason for involving him is because her hope was only in him. You see, she knew who to go to. And she knew why she could go to him. Most of us still need to learn that lesson, but I think God is going to teach it to us today. Why do you involve me? Jesus replied. And then he says something really powerful. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Whenever Jesus says, um, speaks about his hour in the book of John, he's talking about his crucifixion. When he says, my hour has not yet come, what he means is my time to be killed has not, my time to die, my time to suffer and be tortured is not yet. My hour has not yet come. But Mary knew who she was talking to. So she turns to the servants and she says this. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. By the way, let's pause for a second. Good advice for life? Do whatever he tells you. Come on, man. Listen, if Jesus says, hey, here's an idea. Don't pursue a non-Christian for lifelong marriage. If you're a Christian, don't pursue a non-Christian because you're going to be going in different directions and eventually you're going to choose a God different than Jesus. Like, then then here's, a, here's a good idea. Do whatever he says. If you find yourself in a, a moment in life where, you, you know what this is like. You go to work, and there's a person there who's always perfumed. There's a person there who always looks nice. Isn't it true that everybody else looks absolutely perfect, but your spouse, you see their morning breath, you see what they look like when they wake up in the morning. Everybody else is perfect, but your spouse, you want to, I get it. And so when you're in that moment, here's a good suggestion, just a side note. Do whatever he tells you. Don't, don't sabotage that. Don't sabotage everything. 
When you find yourself in a difficult situation and you're not sure what to do, here's a suggestion. Do whatever he tells you. His mother turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Jesus told them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet is the person who's like, um, I don't know, have you ever had like a party where the guy goes, you know, like the guy goes, all right, everybody, go on the dance floor. You know, we're going to do the electric slide or, you know, you know, gives an, you know, like the MC, right? So that, that's the master of the blanket, banquet. He's either that or the head waiter or whatever. They go, they did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Pause for a second. Now this is powerful. So here Jesus is. You get the environment. He's telling them what to do. They get the water. Now here's what I want you to know. The ingredients that were needed, I got this idea from a guy by the name of Daryl Johnson. He's a, a preaching pastor in some university that I can't remember, but he wrote a book, The Glory of Preaching. And in the... Um, and interestingly enough, in the uh, introduction or the prologue of the book, he speaks about this passage, and he says something that blew my mind. He said this. He goes, the ingredients for the miracle, this is why this miracle is like no other miracle in John. There's no other miracle in John like this one. Later on, he says this. They did so, I'm sorry, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. Someone says signs. Seven other, there are seven other times that Jesus does a sign. You know what a sign is? A sign is something that you put up to point to a greater reality, right? So, for instance, if you ever see on a fence, beware of dog, you don't automatically assume that the sign is a dog, Right? Because the sign is making you aware of a greater reality behind the fence, right? So Jesus is giving us a sign to a greater reality. Do we have the signs up, Liz? Do we have? No? Oh, I guess this one's my fault, too. Um, well, I'm, I'm batting a 1,000. Do we have it? Yeah? Okay. So Jesus does seven other signs. The first one is changing water into wine at Cana. But here's the deal. The water at Cana, the water at Cana, listen to me, watch, look at me, is unique to every other sign that Jesus does except another one. You see, for the water, the water did not possess the ingredients necessary to make wine. This is wholly and totally unique. You know what you need to make wine? You need grapes, sugar, 
You need fermentation. You need, when we make wine, in fact, if we can put that up, I have a, a list. First, you have to establish your wine's potential alcohol. Uh, now, there's no alcohol in water. Everybody agree? Okay. Secondly, we have to test the sugar content of your wine. Thirdly, add sugar if necessary. Thir uh, fourth, dissolve the sugar in your juice. Fifth, ferment the juice. Sixth, add yeast. Seventh, insert your airlock. Four, uh, eighth, wait for the fermentation process to complete. In other words, there was nothing in the water that could possibly make it into wine. That's why this miracle is different than every other sign. Let's look at the other signs. The first sign that we just looked at was Jesus turning water into wine. That's in John 2. The second um, sign that Jesus does is the healing of the royal official's son in Capernaum. We see that in John chapter 4. But watch this. That healing was done. The, the, the kid was crippled, but he had, he had his limbs. So Jesus just worked with what was there. But this is different than the water turning into wine because there was nothing in the water that could turn it into wine. Look at the next healing. I mean, the next, the healing of the paralytic at Bethsaida is John 5. The healing of the paralytic, he had a body, and Jesus just healed his body. But with the wine, there was nothing inside the wine. I mean, nothing inside the water that can possibly convert it into wine. This is incredibly powerful. Stick with me. This is big deal stuff. Fourth, the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember? This wasn't out of thin air. Jesus had a little boy's lunch. He had some fish, and he had some bread, and it was what he, and he multiplied what was already present, which was different than the wine, water turning into wine. Look at the next one. Jesus walking on water. This is Jesus using what is presently there to do his great miracle. Look at the sixth one. Healing of the blind man from birth. He was blind, but Jesus fixed his eyes, didn't like create new eyes, right? And look at number seven. The raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. Jesus resurrects him from the dead, but that is different than the one in Canaan because the one in Canaan, there was nothing in the water that could turn it into wine. Why, is, why am I making such a big deal of that? There was only one other miracle that Jesus did where he took the impossible, like the water. But before I tell you what that is, listen to me. That should give us great hope. Because when you and I lose our hope and we are broken, we do not need anything in our lives, nothing in our lives, to commend ourselves to Jesus for him to do a miracle for us. Let me see if I could explain that. You might have had years of using and abusing alcohol, and if you look at your track record, you could look at your life and say, there is nothing in me that could possibly convince me that I'll ever get sober. But Jesus doesn't need anything in you 
to create a new creation that will no longer go back to the drink that has so destroyed him. You might have a marriage, and you look at the marriage and you go, there is nothing in this marriage that can possibly commend itself to hope or a joyful marriage. But Jesus doesn't need anything in your marriage to transform your marriage into something that it was not, into something that he could make it to be. You might right now be living with an unbelievable amount of depression. And you go, there is no hope in me. But Jesus doesn't need any hope in you in order to create a hope for you that is found in him. Don't you see that the ingredient, that Jesus doesn't need the ingredients to be there in order for him to create the new thing that he's going to create for your life. This is, you guys are not nearly as excited about this as I thought you might be. See, you and I do not need anything in order for Jesus to create the miracle that we desperately need him to do in our lives. Because when Christ is our hope, joy is our life. And his disciples, he, um, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Okay, so let's look at this. Beloved, this is a picture of the gospel. Jesus transforming something that was not into something that is. That's what happens every single time a lost person comes to Christ. Every time a lost person comes to Christ, they turn from one thing to another. They turn from dead to living. Every time a Christian finds their joy in Christ, they turn from a person with no hope to a person who has nothing but hope. Every time, every time, and Jesus turns, transforms, and does this miracle all by himself with no help of our own. He does it on his own. But there was, there was another place where Jesus, in a very powerful way, after three days, remember the first verse that we read? On the third day, a wedding took place. There was a moment where Jesus after three days, did another miraculous thing in order to transform a people who were not a people into his people. On the third day, Jesus resurrected from the dead to not only rise from the dead, but to give new life to every one of us. Beloved, your hope can be found in Christ There is nothing that you can live for that is greater and more fruitful and more joyful. Your money may be here today, may be gone tomorrow. But if your hope is in Jesus, then your hope will only expand and grow as you mature in Christ, finding in him your hope. Because you don't, listen to me, you don't need any outside circumstance to have hope in Christ. He can produce it in your heart without any other outside, without any other outside deal. If you're married, we went through all this. Now, here's what we're going to do. So some of you 
have struggled with hope. You're in a difficult spot. I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on in your life. Here's what I know. That in this miracle, we find the gospel. That Jesus Christ is the king of our joy. That he's the one who satisfies. That there is nothing too trivial in your life that you cannot come to Christ with. That there is nothing so far gone that you cannot run to Jesus. That it's possible to have Jesus as the joy of your life even when the rest of your life is falling apart. And there are some people who have even experienced that. Now, I know in telling you this, it's kind of cold comfort because you haven't experienced, but here's what happens. So tomorrow, what's going to happen is what I want you to do is I want you to find your joy in Christ so that hope could be your life. Um, Your hope in Christ so that joy could be your life. So tomorrow, when you go back to that dead-end job and it's a miserable experience and you're having a, a difficult time, You can come back to that place, listen, and you can go, no, my hope is not found in this job or in any other job. My hope is found in Jesus. And you could remind yourself of what he did for your sake so that you could be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You could be reminded that he is with you and for you, even in a hopeless situation. I'm reminded... I'm reminded of Corrie Tin Boon. When she was, uh, Corrie Tin Boon was a woman who experienced the concentration camps. She was a Christian woman who hid Jewish people. And then her neighbor ratted her out. And when her neighbor ratted her out, it, they took her entire family into the concentration camps, all of which died. She was the only one who survived. Her dad died. Her sister died. And her sister said something I never forgot. You'll never know that Christ is all that you need until he's all that you have. Oh, my. And so our joy could be filled in Christ, even in an impossible situation like that. We could have joy because our joy is not connected to what's going on around us. Our joy is connected to the eternal Christ who not only died for us but rose on the third day. Your marriage can be falling apart, and you can look to your marriage and go, there is nothing in this marriage that could commend itself to a good marriage, but Jesus can do anything, even in the most painful situation. So my hope will remain in Christ, and joy will become my life. You, you may have inordinate desires, desires that you feel strongly, but that you cannot righteously satisfy. You might have those desires, and you can find oh, wait, in Christ is my joy. And so I'm not going to look to those things to find my satisfaction. I'm going to look to Jesus. Or maybe, how's about this? Maybe you're hitting on all cylinders in life. Your marriage is great. Your kids are great. Your career is great. Everything is going great. And even in those moments, you can, you can treat those successes like an, um, an old preacher said, um, he says, when, you know, when someone comes to you and tells you you did a great sermon, he said, um, it, it's not meat. In other words, you don't chew on it and swallow it and let it become a part of you. It's like gum. You chew on it and you go, oh, thank you very much, but it's not something that you swallow, you take in, right? And so when your life is going exactly, oh my gosh, your career is going through the roof. Everything is going just through as you planned. 
You can go, no, 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 I'm grateful for this. Thank you, God. But that's not where my hope is. My hope lies in Christ. And so the career, if it goes on for 50 years and I'm a rock star, wherever I go, everybody knows about the amazing abilities that I have, whether you're a chef or an artist, a musician, or a business person, or a a, a scholar, or whatever it is. You like the best in the industry. You can go, that's nice, but that's not where my joy is. So that when temptations come to pull you from Christ because of the great success that you're experiencing, you'll be like, oh, no, 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 my anchor, my joy is held in Christ. You see, when Christ, when Christ is our hope, joy is our life. And therefore, listen to me. When we have people who come up to us and say, you're the best thing that's ever happened. You're amazing. You're wonderful. There's no one like you. We can we cannot get puffed up by it. And when someone comes up to us and says, you are the scum of the earth. You are absolutely horrible. There's no one like you. And that's your story. Listen to me. You can still, it, it won't crush you. You can still go, oh God. I want to hear more of why you said that because I want to grow in repentance. But I don't. It's not my identity. My identity is in Christ. So tomorrow, as you go on your day, I want you to remember that, number one, that when Christ is our hope, joy is our life. Would you practice that tomorrow as you go on through your day? Would you imagine what your day would be like? if you started to practice this? Like if you ran to the train and the guy was looking at you right in the eye as the door is closed, you're like, hold the door, hold the door. And he's like. (laughs) And he let the door close right in front of him. You go, oh, wait, 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 wait. That's a disappointment for sure. I wish I would have gotten on the train. But let me think through. Oh, Christ is my hope. Christ is my joy. Lord, would you remind me that while I may be late to certain appointments, while I may be late to certain important things, you are always on time. Would you remind me that you are here with me because you are my hope and my life is full of joy? When you have that argument with that coworker, would you remind me, oh God, that even though I am immature and sometimes lash out at people who don't deserve it, Would you remind me that you only and always treat me with love and affection? You see, an encounter with Christ like this transforms your life. And it'll turn the pain and the suffering and the difficulty that you're going through, and it'll turn it into joy and mirth and hope. Because when Christ is our hope, joy is our hope.